It is your host, Chidema Okori, and welcome to the Chronicles of Blackness podcast. You've probably guessed it, the Chronicles of Blackness podcast is all about Black people. It's a space for us to share our diverse stories and resources that will help us grow as individuals and a community. So make sure you subscribe so that you can continue to listen, learn, and maybe even laugh a bit. Hey, y'all, welcome back. Today's episode is all about growing up in the 70s. I'm chatting with two people, Mark and Marcus, from different parts of the country whose paths crossed in the 70s, and they've remained friends ever since. We'll be talking about their experiences growing up in the 70s in America. Our first guest, Marcus Carmen, is retired and owns a printing business called King Tees. He's passionate about helping young people prepare for adulthood, and he loves outdoor fitness. Our second guest, Mark Johnson, is passionate about helping people. He actually collects watches and bourbon. (laughs) He is currently working on a book and a podcast where they'll be reviewing fine liquor. So stay tuned on that. I'll definitely share that on our IG page once it launches. By the way, please make sure you're following our Instagram page, Chronicles of Blackness, to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode, y'all. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast, being open to sharing your story on the podcast with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Welcome. Okay, so one of the things we wanted to focus on today is to hear a little bit about your experience growing up in the 60s, the 70s, and that really being the height of the civil rights era, which will also help us think about how it compares to our experiences now. First thing I want to start out with you all is, where were you both born? I was born in Columbus, Ohio, 1961. I was born in uh, Brooklyn, New York, also in 1961. How did you both meet? (laughs) (laughs) We were both incoming football freshmen at Virginia Union University in Uh, Richmond, Virginia. HBCU. Oh, Virginia Union. Okay. So tell us a little bit about what your home as a child looked like. I was raised by a two-parent household with one younger brother in what is known as the East New York section of Brooklyn, New York. And back then, between the ages of roughly two to 12, I was raised in the projects. Now, when people hear the name projects, they have a very vivid picture of what projects are today. However, the projects that I grew up in were very different from what they are today. That development was a new development that my parents had gotten into. And to be honest with you, that was the place to live. That's where people wanted to go to live before they changed the income guidelines. My family was the first black family on my floor. Oh, wow. Okay. It was predominantly white, predominantly Jewish. And at that time in the projects, you had doctors, ad executives, uh, nurses, professionals living in the projects. It wasn't until the federal government decided to change the income guidelines and make it lower income housing that the projects, for all intents and purposes, changed. Mm, Okay. And as a result of that change, my family and many of my uh, friends' families, we were forced to move because our families were making too much money. And that's when um, my family moved my brother and I to Queens, Queens, New York, in a private home, a single family house. 
the style of living was completely different. We were used to taking the elevator up to the 12th floor. We lived in a 14-story building, and everybody essentially and literally lived, lived on top of each other. So we'd run down the stairs to one of our friend's apartments, hang out there, and come back upstairs or whatever. We lived right across the street from our elementary school. And you got, I'll say, a real inner city community feel, if you will. My parents were friends with my classmates' parents, and they used to hang out. They used to party. My mother and and her girlfriends used to play this game called Marjan every Wednesday, and, and they would go to each other's houses. So there was a real community feel to it. And that all changed because Queens living was completely different. It's more suburb-like. Things are further away. You, you just don't walk across the street to the corner store anymore. You got to walk a few blocks or even drive. I could no longer walk to school. I had to take the bus. So the dynamics were a little bit different. But in some ways, it, it was a blessing because right around that time that we had moved, that area of Brooklyn started to change and, and not in a good way. The gang started taking over. And a couple of my friends got caught up into that. And the drug scene hit with heroin and everything. But when I look back on it, I was like, well, you know what? That was probably a good move um, that my parents made at that time. Of course, at that time, I didn't think so because I was leaving all my friends. But it worked out because once we moved to Queens, my brother and I, we got pretty heavy into football, which resulted in both of us getting um, college scholarships to play football so we can continue our education. There were definitely a lot of pluses with the move that we made. My father, he was a city employee, he was management. And my mother, she worked for the uh, New York City Housing Authority as an assistant manager for the projects. They were both college educated. My father graduated from NYU. Uh, my mother uh, graduated from the College of New Rochelle. And so it was always expected for my brother and I to go on to college. They stressed education. My father was an athlete. He was a basketball player. And so he understood the importance of athletics. And he supported that for me and my brother in every way. Had a very supportive support system there. So overall, I couldn't complain about my childhood. How old were you when you moved from um, Brooklyn to Queens? I was 12. 12. Oh, okay. So you had experienced Brooklyn long enough, you kind of grew up there. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. Okay. Marcus, do you want to share? Yep. Uh, born in Columbus in 1961 on the southeast side of town, probably about 90% black neighborhood. My dad was a barber and my mom was a housewife. We stayed over the southeast side until I was probably about five years old. Then we moved further southeast to a neighborhood called Driving Park. And in that neighborhood, it was about 80% white. At that time, the blacks slowly started moving to this area called Driving Park, and uh, white people slowly started moving out the neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So between the kindergarten and maybe third or fourth grade, all the white folks just moved out the neighborhood further east. Mm -hmm. Okay. So turned to a black neighborhood. Then uh, in the 70s, when they had all the black exploitation movies and all that kind of stuff, you could see the neighborhood just changing. Big Cadillacs, mm -hmm. all kind of crazy stuff on the streets. You know, just watching the whole neighborhood change from just a all-white to a mix, and then it just turned to like 
I ain't gonna say ghetto, but just the neighborhood chain. Mm. I mean, wasn't a lot of shooting. You see fights. We had no gangs at all. Right, see a group of guys hanging together, but they were not labeled as a gang, you know, just from probably just a group from a neighborhood or something like that. Uh, got into sports, played a lot of sports. School, the elementary school I went to was probably about 75% black. Teachers were about 50 50. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to remember one black male teacher in the school. Then when I got to about the sixth grade, they had another. So we had two black men teachers in the school. The rest was uh, black women, white women. I don't remember not a lot of white men. Principal. Did you grow up um, with a lot of white friends? When I first came to the neighborhood, I, I had one white friend in elementary. Mm-hmm. And then about fourth grade, he left. He left, and then most of the white people left. Junior high, same way. Used to be all white school. Mm-hmm. I got there, it was like 90%, 95% black. Like when Mark is from, he's probably got 15 nationalities. When I grew up, it was just in Columbus, Ohio, it was mm-hmm. black and white. Got Nothing you. else. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, I say when I got about the 11th grade, we started getting different nationalities here. But we grew up black and white in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, uh, then in high school, just, here's what happened to me in high school. From where I lived at, two miles north of me was all black high school. Two miles south, there was a high school called South High School where I attended, which was about at about 65, 70 cents white. And it was in the white, low-class neighborhood. But we had to walk over there and get through that neighborhood to get to that school, and that was a whole culture shock for me. Mm. Everything that you can imagine going on down south was going on in that neighborhood. You had to walk to school in a group. Couldn't walk to school by yourself and come home by yourself because you get you know, get yourself hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's what happened. Hey, Mark, what about for you? Yeah, it's a very similar story to Marcus. When I was in elementary school, I had several white classmates and several white friends that I used to hang around with. And one guy in particular that I remember, this Italian kid, never forget his name because we were tight. He moved out to Long Island in the sixth grade and I never saw him again. My middle school was probably about, I'll say, 90 percent black. And so at that point, basically all my friends were black. And that continued when I moved to Queens because I moved to an area of Queens called Laurelton. It, It was mixed, but it sat right next to another town called Rosedale which was all white and heavy Italian. And blacks did not and could not live there in Rosedale. They were very racist, like Marcus uh, illustrated. If you were black, you could not walk through that town by yourself without being harassed, chased, or whatever have you. And we went to school with them. There was one high school in the area, Springfield Gardens High School. And they were bust in there from Rosedale. And me and my boys, we were bust in there from Springfield. It was a weird dynamic because we played football together. And so we were on a team and teammates in the whole nine. We were cool, but they had friends who didn't play sports who were still of that racist mindset. And so while the cats on my team were like, yo, Mark, you should come to the house. And I'd look at them I'm like, I'm not going to your house. <laughs> so I'm not coming over there. And they're like, oh, Mark, I'll meet you on the corner, man. Da, 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 you know? And so that was a, 
very interesting dynamic for me in high school. Yeah, that 70s was a real interesting time, you know, because you had some whites who just did not care for blacks at all. And then you had some whites who hung out with us and real cool. Marcus mentioned something earlier that, see, we weren't just black and white. We had Puerto Ricans, Dominicans. At that time, in the early to mid-70s, we started getting a heavy influx of people from the Caribbean. So I started meeting, for the first time, kids from Trinidad, Jamaica, Barbados, and they started infiltrating my neighborhood in Laurelton. And so I'm learning about different cultures and, and different foods. When I look back on it now, I was like, wow, that was a real interesting time, you know? And I guess back then you took it for granted. You're like, this is just what it is. But I now realize there's a lot of kids who didn't have those experiences that I did at that age. Yeah. How was the relationship? You know, you have the Haitians and the folks from the Caribbean coming in. How was the relationship between them and the Black folks? It was okay for the most part. There were some, but more on the adult level, because I would hear my parents talk. They came over here with, uh, believe it or not, a chip on their shoulder. Some of them were thankful to be here because of I'm leaving the uh, poverty of the Caribbean and coming here for a better life. But a lot of them used to come here and look down on blacks from the United States because of all the stories that they heard about what we went through as a people and how we were being oppressed by our white counterparts. And it wasn't until they got here and started living it did they see why we went through what we went through. But yeah, a lot of them, they looked down on us thinking that we weren't about our business, that we were lazy, that we weren't trying to establish anything, which was completely far from the truth. But it was based on the stories that they heard. Yeah. So I was born in Nigeria. You have the media over there kind of showing us Black people in a certain light. And then come here and you experience Black Americans in a different light. And also you realize that as a Black person, you are not exempt to that treatment of Black Americans in this country. So, I mean, yeah, sometimes there is some privilege around being an immigrant, but still when folks look at you, whether you're from Africa, Caribbean, America, wherever, if you're Black, you're Black to them and they give exactly. you the same type of treatment. Exactly. Racism, they don't care if you're from Nigeria, if you're from okay. Haiti, from Jamaica. If they don't like you, they don't like you. Yep. That's real. So, Mark, I know you brought up the point of you guys being bused from one neighborhood to another. And Marcus, I don't know if you have any experience around that, because I know that was also the time where this whole idea of busing black kids from black neighborhoods to attend predominantly white schools and then white kids going from white neighborhoods to attend predominantly black schools. Did you have any experience around that, Marcus? Now, I graduated in 1979. I think Mark did, too. Seventy-nine. 1980, in Columbus, Ohio, they had mandatory busing. Oh, wow. Okay. But they said they wanted to mix the schools up. They were saying that some schools were getting better education. The high schools in the suburbs, which all the cities, Columbus public, mm-hmm. but they had schools on the outskirts was getting better education, and that's where 90% of the schools were white. We had about 16 schools. Six of them on the outskirts were white. We have four inner city who was total black. Then we had like the rest of them were mixed. Mm-hmm. School I was at was mixed, but it was more white. The students got along fine in my school. We was fine. Like I said, I didn't hang with the white guys, but we was cool. 
Then after I graduated, me and one of my white friends, he's Italian, named Ray, real close today. We didn't hang in school. We played on the same football team. Mm-hmm. We always stayed until we hang out a little bit after school. We hang out more now. We're tight now. We, we really sit down and talk now more than ever. But back to the busing, mandatory busing. Mm-hmm. What they did is they bust the blacks out, whites in. All the white folks slowly left the Columbus Public Schools in Columbus, Ohio. Now you got 16 schools to white. So now you don't have enough kids for the 16 schools because the white kids left. Mm-hmm. Now we got a busing business that started in, in 80. They're still going. They don't have enough kids on the bus. They don't have enough students for the schools. Mm-hmm. But they got the teachers still here because they want to pay them. They want to pay bus drivers. They can sell about four high schools right now, maybe six. Put that money back into the schools. Yeah. But they don't want to do it because there's too many jobs. Teachers they don't want to get rid of. Bus drivers, bus company. Mm-hmm. And the inner city kids, they're paying for it right now. That's interesting because I here in Chicago, we have the reverse where they close down schools. And now kids in that neighborhood are having to go further away to attend schools. And that's an issue, you know, of course. And like you said, closing down schools means jobs are gone. Resources are really gone from that neighborhood, too. That's just interesting to think about how different cities are making decisions around schooling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mark, can you talk a little bit about the bus in your experience? Because it seems like mandatory bus in came before the 80s. Oh, yeah, that busing in New York City, I want to say it it started in the late 60s, early 70s. By the time I got to middle school, I guess because of all the controversy, they kind of got away from it. But what they started doing, we went to school by zones. So if you lived in a certain zone, that's the school that you went to. So, for example, if you lived in Rosedale or if you lived in Springfield or if you lived in Laurelton, you were zoned for Springfield Gardens High School. So just by virtue of that, that makes Springfield Gardens High School very mixed anyway. You know, so, so there wasn't any real need to bus in white people from, say, a white neighborhood because we had a white neighborhood that was part of that zone. Gotcha. You know what I mean? That was their school anyway. But what I found was if your school didn't have a course of study that you wanted to pursue, you can actually apply for that particular course, especially if you were a minority, and especially if that course was at a white school, they would transfer that minority student to that white school just like that, just like that, yeah, because they wanted to get those minority numbers up in those predominantly white area schools. If you were a black kid that wanted to study Russian and Russian wasn't being given in your school, they'd be like, okay, um, Bayside High School, they got Russian, okay, you're going there. And no questions asked. Hmm. You know? Yeah. The reverse wasn't happening? No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely not. The white the white kids were not going to uh, predominantly black schools to take up a particular course of study or anything. So although they did kind of get away from the busing, there was that um, mm-hmm. that they were inventing, okay, which was uh, interesting in and of itself. Wow. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Um. Columbus, Columbus is like 90% black now, and they're still running buses. I do not understand why they're still doing that. Yeah, That's but cool. is this still mandatory, though? No, now it's just open enrollment. You go anywhere you want now. 
We used to know when I was in school, everybody in this whole neighborhood block, we all knew what elementary school we were going to, junior high and high school. We all went all together. Yeah. Now, you don't know nobody on the block because mm-hmm. they get on the bus and they go 10 different directions. Yeah. So you don't know the parents. You don't know, no, you can't tell them, hey, get off the grass, don't do that. You can't do that because you don't know the kids' parents. Gotcha. When we were in school, I could do something three streets over, and they that's Marcus. He lived right there. <laughs> and, and they can come to your house and knock on the door and say, Marcus did this. You mm-hmm. can't do that now. Yeah. That's like a larger <laughs> issue in this country. Of this yeah. And from community to more yeah. individualistic living. When we was growing up, that parent come down the street is probably some parent of a kid that I know, and they know me. Yeah. You mm-hmm. can't do it no more. The community has changed. I noticed it after the busing. People are not knowing each other anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I guess speaking of people changing, I know the 70s, 80s was when Black folks started kind of stepping more into their yeah. business. Yes, can you talk a little bit about what that looked like for you guys? I had a lot of older cousins that were teenagers right around the late 60s, early 70s, when the whole Black Panther movement got started in the early 70s, when all of these Black exploitation films were coming out. And I was a little guy, so I had a very different perspective of what those times were like, because I was still playing in the playground. And it was my cousins who were in the streets fighting for their rights. and being influenced by the, the Black Panther Party and, and basically demanding that they be treated with respect and as equals. So it was an interesting time for me because I kind of understood what was going on, but I wasn't like in it because of my age. But I, I just saw it all around and I saw the impact that it was having, say, on my older cousins in terms of opportunities, or jobs and then going to certain schools or getting certain, even getting certain things in, in the military. Same with my father, uh, how he was trying to climb the management ladder within the New York City uh, employment system. And there's certain obstacles that he had to overcome and how they started implementing the um, civil service exam so that things would be considered more equal or more fair or whatever have you. Even with that, they were not uh, without its challenges, even though things got a little better. But it was rough. A lot of young blacks made a lot of sacrifices for us to even get to where we are today. And looking back on it as an adult, I see where there was significant change and progress made. But obviously, there's still a lot of things that remain the same. So while we have come a long way, we still have a long way to go. Yeah. It was interesting times, though, because after the 70s, when 80 came in, 81, 82, and that crack epidemic hit, man, it felt like the late 60s, early 70s all over again, because back then it was the heroin. But now the crack, it was just destroying families, destroying neighborhoods. All these crack dealers all over the place driving around these fly cars and every other person on the street, it just seemed like they were cracked out. You know, I mean, I had one classmate from high school. We graduated in 79. I saw her in like 90, 91, and she had just started recovering. 
And she, she broke down crying when she saw me, said, Mark, I got to be honest with you. I missed a whole decade of my life. She, she was cracked out throughout the entire 80s. Wow. Don't even remember anything. Wasn't working. She was in the street. Couldn't tell you anything about economics, politics or anything. She was gone. She's like she missed a decade of her life. And when you hear her story and you multiply that because there were so many other people like that, mm-hmm. it, it's amazing that we as a people even came out of that. But it was crazy. Yeah. It was crazy. I want to talk a little bit more about that later, but I want to hear, Marcus, your thoughts around just Black folks embracing their identity during that time. I was around 11, 12, 5th and 6th grade. I noticed the older teenagers were getting more into the black power, big afro. You had the Olympics, 68. Was 68 Olympics when they did the black power stands? Yes. A lot of that stuff was going on. We was young. Uh And uh, I remember the uh, Black Panthers, where they had a group here called Afro Set. They used to march with black outfits on, walk, march down the main streets like soldiers. Mm. And I remember that. And I had to be like a 7, 12 years old, and I watched them. And everything was black power. They wanted their rights, togetherness. What's up, brother? What's up, sister? They wasn't calling each other out their names. Then, like Mark said, the black exploitation movies came out. 70, 71, 72, 73, Superfly. Can you say um, more about Black X? I don't think I've ever heard that before. You weren't you around yet. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first wave of, uh, okay, you you heard of the movie New Jack City? Yes. All that crack and crime and all that stuff. Uh-huh. The, ones, the movies we're talking about, same thing, but it was in the 70s. Everybody was living kind of cool, kind of smooth. They came with a whole lot of movies called Black Exploitation Movies. They had some good ones and they had some bad ones, but the bad ones, people lean toward that and start, I'm going to dress like that. I'm going to be a drug dealer. I'm going to walk like that. I'm I'm slick. I'm cool. Yeah. And it it destroyed a lot of us, didn't it? Mm. Yeah. In of pimps. Yeah. It was the glorification of drug dealers. A lot of these movies. Yes. Super for my Ron O'Neill. He was a drug dealer. But every young black kid I knew wanted to be Superfly. He was smooth. Exactly. He dressed to the nines. His car was fly. He had all the women. And he was a pimp. Yeah. That was the New Jack City back then. Yep. That's right. Same thing. Yep. So now New Jack City comes out, what, 70, 30 years later? Something like that. 30 years later, you come with New Jack City. Here we go again. Yep. Same thing. Hmm. Yep. And it got a lot of people killed, a lot of people put in jail, a yep. lot. Mm-hmm. Because of the glorification and them exhibiting those behaviors and things like that. Yep. Yep. That, that movie screen is powerful, yep. real powerful. That's yep. interesting. Do you feel like that's where the crack cocaine epidemic came this from? Part of, this part of, for the drug dealers, because New Jack City and Scarface, these two movies, I've just seen too many people want to be New Jack, Nino Brown, and Scarface. Yeah. Those two movies just did the same thing Superfly did 30 years later. Yeah. One of the thoughts that's coming to mind, thinking about that being an era where Black people were, for the longest, held back, and really the Black identity was 
seen as this negative thing. So meant that Black people weren't able to actually live out their true selves. And then you probably don't even know what your identity is. And you guys talk about these movies portraying this characters. I'm wondering if that made it easier for Black folks or really people to cling on to those characters because of their struggle for their own identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. TV is very powerful. Yeah. Now, when me and Mark was growing up, we had probably had four channels in, in Columbus. How many of y'all had? <laughs> About four or five channels, yeah. We had four channels. They were all controlled, right? Then in about 78 or 77, cable came out. You got all these channels. Yeah. See, when we was growing up, you mm-hmm. could watch anything you wanted to watch. See, these black exploitation movies, you had to go right. to the theater. People would go to the theater and see that they come out crazy. Oh, they come out want to be that. But mm-hmm. now, y'all can watch anything you want at any time. So that's why the TV, these kids, they see too much. They see yeah. too much. They're doing too much at a young age. Yeah. See, we, I, when I was 12, those movies came out, you had to sneak in to see one. Yeah. These kids can watch it in their house at any time of day or night, anything they want. Mm-hmm. And that TV is powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think the pandemic even took that to another level of, like, the theaters being closed for so long. Yeah. And- Things just come in straight. And these cell phones, an eight-year-old can get a hold of a cell phone or TV and see things that I never saw until I was 19 years old. The Superfly, when those movies came out, was that around the time that Cable also expanded? No, Superfly came 73. Cable came about 77, 78. Yeah, Cable came out later, so. Gotcha, okay. Okay, could you both talk about your transition to college, how did you decide, how did you pay for college? I was playing uh, high school football and I wanted to play college football. It was always a dream of mine. And at that time, I had a couple of scholarship offers from some small Division II schools in Kansas. And I was saying to myself, only thing I know about Kansas is the Wizard of Oz. I'm not going to Kansas. <laughs> So I was like, I was talking to my father. And so he was like, well, what about some of the black schools? I said, a couple of them uh, has sent me letters, but nobody really stepped up, you know, with an offer or anything. So he knew a guy, had a friend that went to Virginia Union who knew Coach Bailey. So he told Coach Bailey about me and Coach Bailey called my father, said, well, you know what? Why don't you come on down? And bring some film with you. We see what you got. And I went down there, brought my film, sat up in there, watched it, critiqued it in the whole nine. And at the end of the film session, he was like, you know how to run that ball. Would you like to play for Virginia Union? I was like, yep. (laughs) And and that's how it went down. Signed my letter of intent right there on the spot. And then um, August of that year, I was on the campus of Virginia Union University. Now, once I got down there, I will say that it was a bit of a culture shock to me, and it was more of a regional thing. There were a lot of differences between kids, I found back then, depending on where you were from. Depending on whether you were from the South or the Midwest or the East Coast or the West Coast, you talk differently, you dress differently, you dance differently. 
And, and so there were a lot of differences. And so it was real interesting for me to see those differences amongst the kids who were my exact same age. Mm-hmm. Going to an HBCU and then transferring and finishing at a predominantly white university made me appreciate my black college experience even more because it is not the same. It is not this. It's just way different. (laughs) It's just way different from the bands to the games to the the whole social atmosphere and even to to the academics. Because at Virginia Union, I remember um, Dean of Students just walking down in the quad saying, excuse me, young man, come here. I was like, yes, sir. He's like, I don't believe I know your name. So I told him my name. He's like, if you're not doing anything at two o'clock, I'd like to see you in my office. I'm like, okay. And he, I get in the office. He was like, okay, so what's your story? Where are you from? What do you want to do? What, what's going on? Because he generally wanted to know what I wanted to do with my time at Virginia Union. He was about building quality students, you know? And I was like, wow. And compare that to my experience at the white school that I went to, that never happened, you know? There were just very stark differences, you know? I know you talked about a culture shock and coming from New York to Virginia Union. What was one thing that stood out for you? The differences in the way we dressed and some of the terminology. Like in New York, we wore sneakers. In Virginia, they wore tennis shoes. And that was the first time I heard that term. I was like, I don't play tennis. Why are you calling tennis shoes? (laughs) (laughs) It was interesting. I thought everybody my age dressed that way. But no, that was that was an East Coast thing with the uh, the designer jeans and the mock necks, pumas and the suede pro kids and stuff like that. So so I was like, okay, this is our thing. It's not necessarily everybody's thing. So Marcus. Mine was I was playing football and uh, I made a mistake in high school. I did something wrong and uh, got myself in some trouble, not serious trouble, but got myself in trouble. And I wasn't going to college at all. I was done. They were through with me. The, the scouts came and they turned, you know, we're not going to mess with this guy. So mm-hmm. I wasn't going nowhere. And what happened was this man named uh, George Powell. He was, he was a Virginia Union uh, alumni. He came to me and said, uh, hey, man, you ain't going to school? I said, no, I ain't going nowhere. He said, you want to try Virginia Union? I said, yeah, yeah I'll try it. So what he did, he called the coach, put me on a bus to Virginia. I drove the bus to Virginia, got off the bus. Somebody came, picked me up at the bus station, took me to the school, dropped me off. I'm standing with my luggage. <laughs> I don't know nobody. Then finally, uh, start practicing football. Next thing you know, we met the coach and everything, and I didn't get a scholarship, but I didn't have to pay nothing either. They just, I don't know what, what the plan was, but they got me in the school. So I was there and, uh, we start training, met Mark. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I'm, I'm going to jump from football. That's how I got there. Mm-hmm. So I told Mark this story before. We had orientation. You stand up, say your name, where you're from, what you're here for. Remember, this is all before cable. I didn't know nothing about California, New York, down south, none of that. Cause before cable, we didn't know what was going on around the country. Right. Mm-hmm. All I knew was Midwest, Ohio, Indiana, you know, Chicago, a little bit around here. So 
this girl got up in the orientation and said, my name is Lady Star. She started rapping. Okay. <laughs> the, first, the first rap I ever heard in my life. Yeah. I'm looking at her like she's crazy. What is this woman? <laughs> and then Mark was explaining to me what she was doing. She's rapping, Mark. I'm hearing you. I don't understand what you're telling me. She was, she was rapping. Yeah. The first rap I've seen in my life. About a year later or less, yep. I heard it on the radio. Yep. And Thanksgiving, he took me to New York and I saw it live. Mm-hmm. And I was still shocked. Like, what in the world is going on here? What kind of music did you guys listen to? Everything but rap. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we listen to. Gotcha. Everything but that. Okay. That's the whole world. See, that's why he was saying there's a culture style. He came from that, and mm-hmm. I came from this, and we like, what in the... Mm-hmm. See, because at that time, rap wasn't on the airwaves yet. It wasn't record. It was street uh, music in New York City. Yeah. So if you weren't from New York City, you really didn't know what rap or hip-hop was. Got yeah. It. Okay. Like Marcus said, the world didn't learn about hip-hop or rap until a year later when it finally hit Somebody decided to record it. Well, let me call it what it is. When the record labels saw dollar signs, that's yeah. when it started to sign these young artists. Yeah. That's when the rest of the country and the rest of the world found yeah. out what rap was. Yeah. yeah. But in 1979, if you were outside of New York City, you did not know what rap was. And that was Marcus's um, experience, you know. And I still laugh about it to this day. I've seen it hands on. Yep. I call all my friends on the phone. We have cell phones. We have a pay phone. Yep. I'm calling my friends, explaining them what I saw, and they're like, what is Marcus talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. I'm trying to explain them what this hip-hop and rap and all this. They're like, what you talking about? Yep. Every time, man, what you talking about, man? What's wrong with you? It's true. I see it for the country before mm-hmm. we saw it here. That's right. Here's the funny thing. I moved from Virginia Came home for a year and went to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. The West Coast took rap to a different level. They took and put the cussing, gangster, yeah. murder. <laughs> they put all that in. Yeah. That's gangster. what they started rapping about, that, all that other stuff. The East Coast was talking positive. Yeah. The West Coast was just like we said about the exploitation thing. Yeah. Here you go again. Yeah. The black exploitation, when the rap hit the West Coast, Everybody wanted to be that gangster murder killer. Yeah. Yep. That's interesting. Yep. yep. That's a whole other story. We go a whole yeah. that's another show. Yeah. That's a whole <laughs> session in and of itself. Yeah. We could set something up. Yeah. Yeah, that's another <laughs> that's show. Cool. That'd be cool, actually. Yeah. That's so interesting. I don't think I ever realized that. Yeah, that's we give you some history here. Yeah. yeah. What took you to the West Coast? Just wanted to get a fresh start. I left Virginia. I went home. So I just wanted to start over, go back to school and try it again. And mm-hmm. I went to the West Coast. Oh, so you didn't finish in Virginia? No, I only did one year. Gotcha. And then you went, did you finish in the West Coast or? No, I, I came, I went to Virginia one year, came home for a year, went to the West Coast, did two years, and then that was it. Okay. I, I never finished. Gotcha. But that's a whole nother story, too. Just to wrap us up. <laughs> Um, I want to hear you both. So what is the one takeaway or one thing that you want folks who are listening to this to know about the 60s, 70s era? I could say it was some of the best years. I had a lot of fun, 60s, 70s. We had a lot of fun growing up. 
It wasn't as violent as it is today. These kids got a lot of pressure today. We didn't have all this pressure like they got. Mm. You know, we had a lot of fun growing up. I wish that my high school took me by the hand more like my junior high and elementary and tried to get me ready for the world and got me ready for college and all that. But high school, I wish it wasn't like that. But sure. yeah. growing up, I had a ball. I would like to agree with Marcus. Growing up in the, in the 60s, early 70s, it was fun. Had a ball. And like I said, there was some, um, you had your little rough patches for me, you know, like I said, because the, the gangs were prevalent in New York City. But outside of that, I had a great childhood. Just the whole community feel. People had each other's back. Mm -hmm. You just don't see that. It's not as prevalent. Maybe some communities are more tightly knit than others, but it's not the same. Like there was a thing called community parenting that does not exist today. Yeah. Back, back then, anybody's parent could tell you, yeah, big boy, get, get up off of that or whatever, you know, and, and it was fine. But yeah, I loved growing up in the 70s. That's awesome. Well, thank you both. I really appreciate you just being open with your stories um, during this recording and really looking forward to recording more episodes with you all. Honestly, I feel like I learned so much about that era and definitely excited to learn more as we record more in the future. So today's episode was, as they said back in the days, the bomb diggity, or in today's terms, it was lit. <laughs> I learned so much about the 70s from Mark and Marcus's perspective, and I'm excited to hear more stories that show us how different the Black experience was back in the days. I was so enlightened. I'm still kind of cracking up about Marcus's experience when he first heard someone rap. And if you think about it, before TV and radio, Folks really wasn't aware of what was going on in their neighboring states, talkless of neighboring countries. But today, we know so much about every state and every country. It's mind-blowing. Make sure you are subscribed to this podcast so that you do not miss any future episodes that I'll be recording with Mark and Marcus. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you did, please share it with any and everyone you know. If you haven't subscribed already, I bet click subscribe. It's free. So just click it. That way you'll know when we upload new episodes. If you would like an opportunity to share your story, a knowledge area, or resources that may be useful to the Black community, please send us an email to chroniclesofblackness at gmail.com. We would love to have you. Remember, you don't have to be perfect to come on the show. You just have to be open. So contact us at chroniclesofblackness at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Chronicles of Blackness podcast. Before we go, please show some love by leaving us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. Then stay tuned for the next podcast episode. Until next time, I wish you peace and love. Stay blessed. <laughs>